0: Everyone, welcome to the podcast, where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast goal is to bring the top medical experts to your favorite listening devices or to your visual devices like YouTube. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as personal medical advice. For that, please consult your trusted healthcare professional. Today's topic, AI or artificial intelligence, it's something you're hearing a lot about every single day. And there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of the nightmare scenarios, like it's going to take away thousands of jobs. But today on the podcast, I really want to explore whether AI will make the practice of medicine better or worse. And there's a lot to this. In brief, AI tools are already outperforming doctors in certain areas of medicine. They're really, uh, they show that they're excellent in uh, looking at radiology scans. In dermatology, they're actually extremely good at um, figuring out pictures of rashes. Um, so they really have, a you know, where there's sort of repeated imaging, uh, they are very good at it and probably make the life of the doctor a little bit easier. But on the other hand, AI's had some spectacular failures too, like IBM's Watson, we were hearing that, you know, after it, I think it beat the, uh, all those Jeopardy! champions, it still hadn't cured cancer. Um, So maybe, just maybe, AI and doctors need to somehow forge a partnership. This is not a competition to help advance medicine beyond our wildest dreams. My guest today is a return guest, Dr. Michael Siegel. In a recent podcast, Dr. Siegel and I spoke about ADD, and he had a lot of really interesting things to uh, say about that, but it turns out he's kind of multi-talented. He's also quite uh, a computer expert, and uh, we'll talk about, he actually has started a company called Simul Consult, which helps doctors through their computer algorithms make difficult diagnoses, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. So I'm really excited to bring back Dr. Michael Siegel to the podcast.
1: Thank you.
0: Okay. So Dr. Siegel, you know, you and I, I think have been around long enough to appreciate the original rigors of medical school training, studying from hours from textbooks like Harrison's or Cecil's internal medicine doing anatomy, you know, where we, you know, obviously worked on uh, dead bodies and of course looking at slides of pathology. W- was this all for naught? I mean, are people going to be able to just the, the future medical students just going to be able to uh I don't know, talk to chat GBT and say, "Hey, uh what's what's going on with this disease?" I mean, or uh is it going to change how medical students learn, would you say?
1: Oh, well, it's certainly going to change how we learn, but um if you've watched Doctors use uh, tools such as uh, our diagnostic software and non-doctors. It's, uh, it's a huge difference. The doctors know what's going on and the lay people largely don't. And uh, so medical education is is, uh, is certainly worthwhile. And I remember back when I was a medical student, some of the senior doctors would say, uh, don't try to learn all the details about all the diseases learn how to take a good history and do a good physical exam and that's the most important thing and my thought was well that's easy for them to say because they know the diseases right uh, right uh, but like what are the rest of us supposed to do and uh, (laughs) when i was a resident uh i was uh I, I was rotating on the uh, with a pediatrics resident rotating through pediatric neurology, and I had an admission, one admission, and lots of time on one day. And I was presenting to one of the top doctors in the field, uh, one of the real founders of child neurology, basically. And uh, I went. Uh, I looked through the entire Menke's textbook for every single disease to try to see does this fit with this patient, and. Uh, On rounds the next day, uh, Dr. Dodge asked me, what what do you think is going wrong? And so I said, well, I looked through the whole Menke's textbook, and the only thing I could find that seemed to fit was Sanfilippo syndrome. So Dr. Dodge, after a moment's hesitation, said, well, I've thought through uh, what you presented about the patient, and the only thing I could think of was Sanfilippo syndrome. And I thought, well, he can do that in real time. It took me a few hours and it would take me a few hours for the next patient. Right. We really need to sort of.
0: Well, yeah. You know, right. You know, what's interesting what you're saying, and I want the listeners to appreciate this, you know, because, again, all doctors are not alike. And uh, so it'll be interesting when we get into AI, what does that really mean? And when I say that, because again, one of the things I, I've taken pride in, it's like I just never stopped learning. I mean, it's one of the reasons I do this podcast. I just love learning from experts around the country. And um, one of, uh, they weren't actually my professor, but I, I followed them. They were they were the uh, the Shelleys. They were based originally from uh, U of P and then they moved to Ohio. And they were dermatologists. They, they used to write a very nice I guess we would call it a blog today, but it was in a it was in a journal, so it was called Portrait of a Diary. And what they always kept on talking about was how do you improve your um, your skills? And and one of the things, just obviously in dermatology, and I see a lot of rashes in my practice in the allergy side, is that I had to constantly study atlases. That was what we had, you know, obviously in our day, you know, of pictures because you can't obviously see everything five years into your career, 10 years into career, you still don't see a lot of, of everything, you know? Uh, I mean, unless you work at a university hospital and, you know, that's all you do. So you do have to study. You have to, I mean, looking at pictures constantly, to me, helpful. I also, honestly, I have a whole series of what was called Case studies for the house officer, which I still have the whole range of them, because they gave stories of the cases. You know, and and I love reading. I've had her on the podcast, Lisa Sanders. I mean, her stories are always so interesting as you go through the case. But again, this is as an individual just continual learning. And again, it's how much can be stored in my brain. And I guess the question I'm leading to is: It's interesting AI will help circumvent that because in our, like you said, this 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 Dr. Dodge, who was the world expert, yes, his brain was probably encyclopedic on neurological diseases, you know, anybody else, even some other good board certified neurologists, not so much. So if you're able to feed in to an AI system, the symptoms of a particular disease, hopefully the machine, as crazy as it sounds, could maybe come up with a short, short list of a key differential diagnosis that's going to help the doctor make the diagnosis. Does that make sense?
1: Well, that that does. And and in fact, one of my other experiences was uh, when I was a medical student, I was thinking about writing some software like this and did a rotation in clinical genetics. And uh, the geneticist told me, well, you know, writing software like this is a nice idea, but it doesn't really work. And uh, so I did the rotation with him anyway. And, uh, he had me spend a day with something that the March of Dimes had spent six million dollars decades ago uh, writing to help with diagnosing genetic diseases. And so, so the next day I met with him, and he said, "What do you think?" I said, "It wasn't very good." He said, "You, yeah, uh, you know, that's what I, uh, that's what I told you." And but I said, I then said to him, "But you do it. Tell me how you do it." And that was so instructive because here I was as a fourth-year medical student. I would never really had that discussion with anybody. And he really outlined to me the way one does things. And you pick a few very salient findings on physical exam or maybe a lab Mm -hmm. test result. And then you start thinking of some possibilities. And then based on that, you come up with a bunch of diseases uh, in the differential diagnosis that seem plausible. And based on that, you come up with a bunch of other information that's worthwhile to elicit. And that I'm sure seems very familiar to you because you probably do that every day when you're seeing patients. But it was so different from the attitude in uh, artificial intelligence, medical informatics, and like Google search. Like a decade ago, we talked to the people at Google and they said, no, you have to be able to put it into a a box press go and that's it. And I said, well, there's lots of research in medical informatics that says that just isn't how it happens. And they said, well, that's what we do. And uh, so they're playing catch up now uh, because it's becoming possible to do this with with uh, various artificial intelligence tools. And they're basically being crafted at this point to start to think, uh, to start to draw on other resources. And to start to draw on the the ways of thinking that we've been using in medicine for, you know, as long as people have been making diagnoses.
0: I know. But as you know, and I know, too, I mean, you trained at some amazing institutions. I've been fortunate as well that there is still also there's a wide variation in doctor training, maybe even the way the students take it in. I mean, it's really a a process, you know, that, um, because unfortunately, I I think artificial intelligence may um, equalize the really outstanding doctors from, let's say, the ones that aren't, you know, pursuing with as much vigor diagnoses, especially in that area. Do do you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll give you the example, and I hate to say this, but like so many times people go to an urgent care center, they have a sore throat, they have... You know, a cough, whatever. Too, at the urgent care center, I remember they're seeing them on a very, you know, sort of they don't really know the patient that well, so they said, okay, sounds like you got bronchitis, <laughs> and they give them antibiotics and they send them home. I mean, this is kind of commonplace, and I think that, or you know, and as we both know too, that unfortunately sometimes a minor symptom can quickly evolve into a more dangerous symptom. Not not always like you know high percentage, but a certain percentage of cases. And I think that with AI, if again, a lot of doctors have this tool and they, they punch in, you know, a couple of the symptoms and then possibly some laboratory data, there might be some flashing alerts like, wow, this guy doesn't have viral syndrome. That's not that high on the list. You better pursue something else. Um, you know, that a doctor that has more time that knows the patient um, would maybe have a better chance.
1: Um, well, I mean, we try to build things like this into our simul Consult tool. So, for instance, uh, as a doctor, you know uh, that uh, something like Wilson's disease is very rare, right. but it can be fatal and it's easily treatable. Right. So right. one doesn't rank that any higher in a, a differential diagnosis of uh, possible diseases, but one looks for it higher. So we build that into our algorithms. That's
0: great. That yeah,
1: based on treatability. Uh, that,
0: that's an do- important point. I'm sorry that that is so critical, right? You know, because a virus, people are going to get better from anyway. <laughs> In most cases, Wilson's disease. If you don't catch it early, they're going to be needing a liver transplant. You know. Right. So yeah, that that's a that's very interesting. I mean, as I said, I, I think the the possibilities are unbelievable, which can be done, and it's not so much. You know, again, that was the kind of the the catch of this talk. You know, people are so worried about AI replacing them. Oh, AI is going to replace doctors. It's going to replace you know, dentists. It's going to replace everybody. No, it could be an amazing tool that's going to help make us better. If, you know, again, yeah. under the right, at least in healthcare, I can see that. But yeah. well, actually not, well, we're going to get to later. There's a little area that I think is a little, it's a little sketchy, but anyway.
1: And, and not just help you in practice, but as an educational tool. So yes, yes. I told you when, uh, when I asked the geneticist, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was sort of, you know, content nobody had presented to me before. One of the nice things about uh about software, at least in the way we use it in our uh clinician uh version of the software, is it really takes you through the whole process of thinking through a diagnosis and it teaches you the process. Yeah. So from an educational mm-hmm. point of view, uh the thing that had been left out of my education at a very good medical school uh, could be made part of uh, your education. Here's the process by which you mm, think. Mm. Now there's, of course, you know, we have a whole bag of tricks of many different ways of approaching patients. Sometimes we'll use uh, lists. Sometimes we'll use flow charts, but other times we'll use this more g- uh, generalized process of, thinking of possibilities, generating more findings to check, and so forth. And and medical students should be taught each of these approaches. And and of course in other areas like neurology, there's sort of localization based on well,
0: what, what yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt because I get so excited with this, but I guess that was part of my initial question I meant to really bring out. Do you think there's a, a danger? You know, it's kind of like the the way a lot of you know older doctors would say. And it, it's actually applies in any field. Like by by having a little bit of these shortcuts, which really could actually have tremendous potential, are we taking away some of the skill set? Like, as you know too, you know, I think doctors, you know, MDs at least too, their physical exams have uh, their ability has gone down because they touch the patient less. They rely on scans more. Um, do you think that, again, if doctors aren't you know pouring through pages trying to you know, at least, I don't know memorize process? different diseases and just like, oh, okay, the lab says the person has elevated liver functions and their scan shows a large liver. Boom. You know, it gives you the three diagnoses hepatitis, Wilson's disease, whatever. Are we taking away some of the rigor of medical training by having this assistant?
1: Uh, well, well, first of all, the, the uh, older, the older physicians, so the younger physicians tend to like what we're doing because it's tech Uh And you should be able to use tech. Well, why haven't we been using tech? The older physicians actually like what we're doing because it focuses very much on physical examination, Mm. suggesting things to do. And so the people we have curating content into the software tend to be a mixture of people right out of residency and like retired department chairmen.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Oh. That's a that's a very good on the bell on the whatever you want to call it, whatever curve that is the U shaped curve. You're getting the two different ends, which is actually quite good because you're getting the future, and at least you're not losing. What I think, you know, we in, in our society too often we neglect the experience of anyone in a specific field, because they've seen it all, they've seen the evolution and there is, you know, something to that. You know, I mean, I guess all of us, as you know too, um, I mean, there are just cases in my lifetime, which we're going to get to the next subject on this because I'm kind of excited to discuss it about heuristics is that there's always like these cases that stand out in your mind, you know, that even later on, years later, when you're seeing a patient and they, you know, somebody presents in a certain way. You, the back of your mind is going, "Uh oh, better watch out." I just don't want this patient to be the one that has, uh, you know, this rare condition or something that was treatable that, if missed, would you know, would be a, a you know, a horrible mistake.
1: So, so, we actually have two ways of curating information into the software. the The one that the younger doctors primarily do is go through articles or textbook chapters or whatever, and put in all the information, this disease has this finding in 78% and and so forth uh, with this onset and all that kind of information that it's hard for uh, natural language processing to pick up from articles. And then for the older clinicians, we usually use uh, or at least begin with something that we call uh, case-based content improvement, where... They will go through the case that was presented at weekly rounds and sort of see how the software does, see if it's missing anything, see if it, why was this so high? Why was the other thing so low? Uh, go through some of the information. And the software has the, uh, in its database, has the information needed to do that. So it's very different from the, uh, from these chat GPT like tools that just like give you some answer and you have no idea why. Yeah. And, and and they just they from the nature of the technique, those uh uh type of programs don't have the ability to explain what they're doing but from the nature of what we're doing, we do have the, the ability And so there's obviously going to be some sort of uh, uh collaboration there where they will uh, tap into things that we're doing both for accuracy and for uh explainability. So there's a real, uh, it, it's not so much a battle between the two approaches. I think it's going to be a synergy. Mm. We've been working on that and doing wonderful things. And all these people are talking about a six month, uh, a six month moratorium on AI research. But what's going on now is people are taking the initial. Things that had all these issues and coming up with these wonderful ways yeah. to tie into other tools that have domain expertise and they're really improving what's going on. It's it's, yeah, it's wonderful pretty, to watch.
0: Yeah, that's pretty exciting. You know, one of the area of medicine which kind of touches on this a little bit, I, and I'm a little jealous. I I know some of the instructors at the college where I I teach the immunology section in New York, but they have a simulation center, and I love that. I mean, it's like the idea again when I, you and I were training. You know, it was a question of Doing as many procedures, um, seeing as many cases as we possibly could, which is pretty hard because again, it depends. You know, it's 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 you know hit or miss luck. I mean, you know, you're on call that night. Are you going to see this heart attack or this pulmonary embolus? A case that hopefully you're going to learn from to treat other future patients. And with a lot of these uh, simulation centers, uh, which are really incredible the students get to it's like you know it's like a flight simulator they get to see all the potential problems that could go on and be prepared how to react which again really has to do with algorithms and you know and programming you know in these cases that they they can learn from so i think that's that's again it should make amazing doctors in the future yeah. um i wanted to ask you about this too someone i you may know because uh he's kind of a you know one of the world-class hematologist, oncologist, uh, Dr. Jerome Grootman. He was at uh, the Harvard Teaching Hospitals. And um, he's written many articles. He wrote for the New Yorker quite frequently, and he wrote many books on how doctors think. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, because he started to question this, you know, is again, we were trained in something called heuristics, which I had never heard that term until I had read some of his books. And essentially, if I'm correct, it's like, you know, using rules of thumb, which is how we were trained, you know. It's like you know, you go into a situation, you know, is the guy, a, you know, if it's a man, a middle-aged man, is he a smoker? Is he have high cholesterol? Is he overweight? You know, yes, this person's a high probability of having a heart attack. You know, let's get the what we call CPKs. Now it's the troponins, you know, whatever, and you know, let's this guy should be admitted. We got to watch this guy. Whereas the same fifty-five-year-old woman would come in who might've been a little bit obese, but she wasn't a smoker and like, no, she can't, it's unlikely she has a heart attack. You know, you know. again, being the resident, you have to decide, I mean, how many people are you gonna admit that night? And you're like, no, this person can go home if she's got a little bit of chest pain, probably a little bit of indigestion. And what the work of Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel prize actually in economics, but he, to me, he's really a psychologist, was really all about his whole idea about thinking fast, thinking slow, like how a lot of us, we go with our gut feeling, which may be sometimes right, but a lot of times is wrong. So how do, again, how do you see the approach with using AI? Does it minimize heuristics that again, it's over, you know, overvalued in teaching, you know, young doctors and even clinicians.
1: Um, well, one of, one of the nice things about using software is that they're, they think differently from that heuristic approach, and um, so uh, if you have a tool like that, uh, if if you have a uh, one of these uh, tools like our Simul Consult software, you have something that's really approaching the patient very differently, and so now you have two things, and uh, if they both agree, fine. But if one raises some danger and the other doesn't then you start to think about the details, which one is right. And so uh, the, the individuals you mentioned talk very much about this concept of premature closure, of just zeroing in on something that, you know, is your first impression. And that's very dangerous. And having different sort of tools helps guard against premature closure.
0: Okay, so let's talk about this again, going back to this case with the chest pain you know because obviously that's always a very scary thing residents are trained do not miss you know a heart attack patient you know it doesn't look good on your your resume you know whatever or that or the hospital's uh survival rate but two patients come in let's say even they're males two patients come in both complaining of some kind of vague chest pain okay and again in the same age range let's say 45 to 60 um You you get an EKG. Obviously, there could be some signs that it's clear cut, you know, uh, you know, a heart attack, a myocardial infarction is going on. Other times, not so clear cut. Maybe what they call T wave inversions or something. Can AI or will AI be helpful? Let's say even the emergency room setting, helping doctors say, okay, this patient needs further care in the hospital. This patient can be evaluated and followed up at home. Um,
1: Well, one of the nice things about uh, this. Uh, useful findings to check uh, next that, that I described as a sort of second step in diagnosis is that it can bring up findings about other diagnoses. So, okay. Uh, so in the situation you described, yeah, it, it's probably uh, cardiac or digestive or even. Uh, uh, costochondral of just a breathing but you have to wonder is this an aortic aneurysm
0: of course right that's right this that's, that's and, and deadly so, uh,
1: so one of the nice things about uh, uh, the so if that's reg- in the software and registered with a high treatability uh, then it will you'll get questions about uh, asking you about various findings that could confirm an aortic aneurysm And so you can build this stuff in. And so when we have the senior people go through situations like this, they will make sure that the software isn't going to miss stuff like this, that, you know, you putting in stuff, you're not going to miss things like this. And that's the sort of wisdom that that uh, our uh, our mentors taught us on rounds, et cetera, to three or four people. But if you can teach it to, uh, to a tool that's used by thousands of people, you're really leveraging your expertise much more widely.
0: You know, it's funny, you remind me of a great story. Again, this is, this is the perfect example of like a story that has stayed with me 40 years. I was a medical student during my surgery rotation. And really, there were really a bunch of really good surgeons, and uh, <laughs> one of them was telling a story. Now, I hadn't even seen this case, but they were just telling the story. And they were telling the story of there was a patient who um, was having terrible back pain. He was, like, in his mid-40s. And he went to the emergency room once. They checked him out. He had to take some Advil, go home, right? Having severe back pain, you know, and comes back. Few days later, you know, still in horrendous pain. Okay, give him a shot of, you know, morphine or whatever. Da, 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 da. So this is going on for about a week and terrible back pain. Like, you know, and he never really had back pain before. And finally, you know, he says to a friend of mine who's a doctor, he goes, I, I can't get the doctors to take me seriously. I mean, I'm they go, he goes, Next time you go to the emergency room, tell them that you have chest pain. Okay. So he <laughs> changes the diagnosis, he goes in. He goes, I'm having chest pain. <laughs> They're all over him and working him up. Turns out he had an aortic aneurysm, which they caught in time. And you know, again, for our listeners, back pain is one of the classic signs. Now don't get crazy if you have back pain that you have an aortic aneurysm, but if you are having also any kind of chest discomfort and you're sweating and you're having back pain, you know, again, that's where I can see your your, your program, your the simul consult, whatever. Helping a, a young doctor in the emer- or even an experienced doctor in the emergency room, watching out for something that is potentially curable but potentially deadly, all within a week, right?
1: I mean, just this morning I was uh, answering an email from. Uh, Uh, From a woman who has hypokalemic periodic paralysis. Uh,
0: Yes, for for the listeners, that's someone where they lose potassium through their kidneys. I know one of the professors at my school was like an expert on that, and literally you're paralyzed. It's it's especially in children. I think that's what that presents. Well,
1: actually, all in all of us potassium fluctuates. Like if Mm. you go out for uh, pizza and uh, soda with sugar, your potassium will drop and your sodium will go up. And those are triggers for hypokalemic periodic paralysis. Oh, wow, that's interesting. But if you have these genetic variations, you will go into a paralysis episode for a bit. And so one of the most haunting uh, recollections from my time as I think was a medical student was they had us at a patient's bedside and were teaching us what the signs were of uh, of, uh what they called hysterical paralysis, uh, or, or now we'll call uh, functional paralysis, and. Uh, doesn't follow muscle groups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, what's haunting to me about it is that if you follow those rules of thumb, you would not realize it's hypokalemic periodic paralysis. Now, the the disease had been described like maybe a decade before that, and it just hadn't worked its way into any of these protocols. Mm. And uh but the fact that people follow these protocols and that they're not exposed to the sorts of situation to sorts of diagnostic possibilities that uh, that could be going on is, is it's just i feel terrible about it and so i was corresponding with this with this woman this morning who had she has this card that she carries with her and that says that she has it but it still doesn't work it's just well it's, you
0: have to well for doctors at least you just gave me a good idea i mean you got to call it pizza paralysis i mean if somebody has a pizza and they, they get paralyzed you know, doctors better start thinking that it's hypokalemic. Right. I
1: mean, it classically <laughs> happens with, to a teenager. first happens to a person when they're a teenager and go out with their friends and have soda and pizza. It's really? like I've heard oh, multiple stories. Wow, wow,
0: that. wow. That, that, that would be a great Lisa Sanders case. Um, let me ask you this, though, too, about the flip side of AI. You know, again, one of the things that we're hopefully trained as doctors is human observation, you know, looking at a patient um you know again again i think it's one of the almost instinctual thing that we get after years of training you know you look at a person you could tell they look sick or obviously you go into a room and i know a really excellent clinician who trained me in infectious disease She said she always had a great, she worked at Bellevue. That's where she did her infectious disease training. She goes, goes, and everybody said she had the best nose. I mean, she could smell anaerobic bacteria from across the room, you know, because it had a stinky smell, you know, or again, how you look how a patient walks, like even when they walk in their room. Now, AI can't capture any of those things. How important, again, is that? Or again, it's just really this combination of the AI with, again, not getting lax, in our clinical observation skills.
1: Well, that's the whole importance of this usefulness algorithm that we have that really implements what my uh, preceptor as uh, when I was a medical student taught me is that based on what's going on, you should think of other things to check. And we divide those into clinical and tests for two reasons. One is that the clinical ones are, are cheaper but also you can like get the answer within a few seconds. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's really important to sort of, if there's some situation where it's a disease where there's a characteristic smell, our software will say, will ask you is there a characteristic is there an unusual smell to the oh, that's
0: interesting right like let's say with well, a patient's got like cirrhosis or whatever too or or a diabetic that's in keto acidosis or going you know again before it's really super obvious if you you know that to, I mean, so to look for that, that that's interesting, you know, because again, that's what used to define, quote, the master clinicians, you know, they'd come in, you know, again, this was typically the professor <laughs> walking in on the rounds with all the, the little medical students, like, like little chicklets following him around, you know, and he would go into the room and, you know, it was like Sherlock Holmes, you know, you'd go in and like, what's the, what's the little sign that can give away the diagnosis, right. you know?
1: So the... Uh- the software doesn't tell you if that sign is positive, right. but the software tells you to look, to look
0: for, for it. it. Right, well, and, well that's important. You know, that's like, Maybe you know,
1: like a thousand of these things. You could easily learn all thousand of them, just how to check them when you're in medical school, or we have, you can just click links and see, uh, and well, see something.
0: is it better as, okay, this is interesting to me, because, you know, Atul Gawande, another one of the Harvard uh, writer surgeons, you know, he wrote a book called The Checklist, which they kind of was uh, – there was a guy, John Hopkins, who had come up with this because he was seeing so many errors in the, in the uh, OR, oh, the operating room. And uh, he came up with – I think it was Peter Provolone. Yeah, that was his name. He, uh, he came up with this checklist. Like so in the – you know, obviously you go into the OR, they, make, they put a big X I think it's on the opposite limb that's not supposed to be operated on, you know? And uh, this because you know, again, once in a while you hear one in a million, somebody's operated on the wrong side, you know? And, and did they check for this, this, and this, which makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's what they did in the airline industry. That's where they took it from. And they found that there was much less human error, you know, in air travel. Um, but I guess my question was, sometimes you're getting these lists and it could be overwhelming to the person. I mean, it's like, you know, you go into a room, you don't have time. I mean, there are obviously some key lists you should be checking, but again, if you're bombarded with information, which is again, what AI can do, because it's like a, a huge, you know, it's like an Amazon warehouse of books that you need something that helps you rank it or, you know, it's also, it's like a treasure hunt. I mean, a treasure hunt, they can give you a hundred clues, but if you have an hour to to do the looking, you probably want the five most important areas to look.
1: Right. So that's the importance of the usefulness algorithm because it mm-hmm. ranks what's most useful to check. Okay, And, uh, and uh, it, uh, there was one of the professor the pediatrics professors at Columbia once wrote an op-ed in the New York times about <laughs> some of the things going on in electronic health records and said that there's all these checklists and, it's just, there's so much information there that you don't really pick it up and that they could have checked off patient has no head and you wouldn't notice it. So we so we rank things uh, by usefulness, looking prospectively and by pertinence, looking retrospectively. In other words, if you found a bunch of things, we can tell you which ones have most influence on the diagnosis and therefore you should be most certain that you really have uh noted that correctly Hmm. but we also use in diagnosis we also use checklists we know them by the name of workups that there's a whole bunch of things that you look for for psychosis for instance to look for all the types of psychosis that can be due to brain tumors or well autoimmune conditions and you know all sorts of treatable stuff and so we also support that in Simul Consult. So there's uh, there's all sorts of modes you use, and there isn't just sort of one approach that you always use. And uh, and the whole idea of well constructed tools is to mimic the thinking of great doctors, but do it with great memory that you know most of Nobody, us don't right, have.
0: We, right. So let me ask you this: I mean, this, this to me would be my dream use of AI. You know, in my practice, I see complicated cases like chronic fatigue syndrome. I see something that's called like mast cell activation, a whole bunch of things, which I've gotten very experienced because I see a lot of cases. But I, you know, I get pretty often comprehensive labs. I mean, I'm talking about the whole slew of immune inflammation markers. I'm looking at, you know, different um, biomarkers, et cetera. But what would be amazingly, I'm sure for any physician, but what I would love, my personal wish list, would be almost, I get my you know, my typical labs or whatever that, you know, because I've kind of designed this for the, because I have seen these patients, but it's almost like if something did pop up, you know, I'll throw this out. Let's say someone has a elevated parathyroid hormone and maybe an elevated ACTH, the adrenal cortical hormone, whatever too. If the, the lab kind of along with my just the, the report said, okay, Dr. Mitchell, these are the four or five diagnoses you really should consider, almost like you're saying in simul consult, that saying, you know what, you know, I'm seeing a patient for chronic fatigue, you better work them up, they don't have hyperparathyroidism causing their fatigue, which is it's actually a cause of fatigue, you know, or, or a patient has an elevated, as you know, we know these, um, we call, used to call them the generalized inflammation markers, like a sedimentation rate or CRP, which doesn't tell us much, it just kind of hints to us Inflammation is going on in the body. Dr. Mitchell, you know, maybe order these next few tests. Is that on the near horizon or does it even exist already?
1: Um, uh, yes, we we do that. And we actually added to it a few days ago after oh, wow. talking with, we happened to mention something while talking to people at one of the top academic medical centers. And they said, we don't really have much resources uh, to interpret do the clinical interpretation of like organic urine organic acid testing or right. or yeah. blood amino acid testing and right. i happened to just mention something like that using an example of showing some of our natural language processing and um and they said oh wow this mm. this is perfect for one of our pain points in terms of clinical interpretation because you put in a few findings about the patient and then we have filters for saying okay let's just look at organic acids or let's just Mm -hmm. look at radiology Mm -hmm. or whatever to try to mimic the role of a a specialist trying to uh, a a laboratory specialist trying to go through the clinical correlation and so you'll get a rank list of the usefulness of commenting on different organic acids being high or low or Mm -hmm. whatever <clears throat> and then that adjusts as you put more in, and so you get a uh, you get a very um, uh, detailed, complete uh, use of the clinical correlation. And it happens that like a major textbook of which included a lot of this is out of print, but we had put that information into the software. And so, not only does that preserve it, but it allows you to compute with it in a way that comes back to you, and uh, and suggests what would be most useful to comment on. Oh, that, that's super yeah.
0: helpful. Now, w- would the lab pay for this? Because they're the one. Let's say you know, let's say a doctors ordering the test, or I mean, would a doctor or a hospital system have to pay, you know, for that software, or should actually even the lab have this software so they're helping the physicians?
1: Um, well, it's as you point out, there's a real sort of network issue here of the whole network benefits from that. And one of the surprises that we found is the degree to which an entire department uh, and the labs that work with want to all adopt the software at the same time. Because normally, if you're sending requests for urine organic acids, you'll just say, you know, intellectual disability, et cetera, that's it. Uh, But if you know they're gonna interpret it using this software, you'll do that with onset of seizures at this age, uh, dystonia, Mm -hmm. uh, hyperreflexia, you'll put in a few things like that. So then when the lab is looking at it, they'll be able to comment very explicitly on the particular organic acids that are abnormal, and they'll be able to compute from what you send them they won't have to re-enter it into the software. They just will pick up from where you left off, bring it back to you, and then you'll go check for some other clinical stuff. It allows a degree of clinical correlation to be uh, uh, to be a, a group effort. And this is what electronic health records were meant to do. To not- oh, Okay, I,
0: I, I, had, I was gonna get to that. I just have to say one thing. Well, I'm sorry, I'm jumping in, but you know, Electronic medical records to me are one of the biggest disasters of modern medicine. I, you know, and the reason I say that, I mean, I'm not saying it was great back in the day when doctors had, you know, uh, undecipherable handwriting, you know, on on notes, although some of them had wonderful notes that you could learn a lot in just a paragraph versus these things that are like dictionaries. You know, when I get medical records, I don't care where it's from, Sloan, Kettering, Columbia, any, any place, it's like, it looks like a laundry list of things that you don't even know people checked half the things. It's useless to me. I mean, in my own practice, actually, I don't use it. I mean, I've typed up notes, whatever, but you can look at my note and hopefully get a fairly good idea of my thought process um, of the, what I ordered and the key things. So you can get, uh, you know, you don't have all day for one patient, you know, like with some of these medical record electronic medical records, they're like 20 pages for one patient's visit. Right. I mean, it's, it's
1: useless. So the kinds of things that we're doing are what people fantasized about when they said we need electronic health.
0: Okay. Okay. Um uh,
1: it's the ability to make uh to make your information about a patient computable. So yeah. the set of findings that you have gets added to by the lab, and then you add to it by doing okay. some of the clinical correlation. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, uh, I mentioned that we're doing this natural language processing. So it allows you to look in the electronic health record and not just see what's there, but because we have a usefulness algorithm, it can not just answer the question of what information is in the electronic health record, where it's going to be all sorts of stuff. Uh, It answers the question of what information is in the electronic health record that is most useful for my patient.
0: Right. Because, you know, unfortunately, electronic medical records would probably really... Uh, brought about for billing purposes, you know, you know, right, you know, so people can bill at certain levels because they're, you know, they uh, review of systems, family history, all that stuff can be kept on being included time after time with minimal effort by the doctor, not really even asking again, you know, what's going on in your family, you know, does anybody in your family have this disease? It's just the, you know, it's just it's cut and paste, you know, and uh, it. Um, I find them really distasteful, honestly. Yeah,
1: I, I think we are. Uh, I mean, there will continue to be pushes in that direction, but I think the kinds of things we're doing are pushing in the other direction to use usefulness and pertinence and all the sorts of things that we normally uh, uh, think about when we think about a patient and good communication and consults and do all of that with a really fluid shared uh, approach. And uh, we, we can we can bring to uh, fruition what people fantasized about but moved in the wrong direction. I'm
0: getting very, you're getting me very excited because at the end the we're gonna find out more where where people can, you know, doctors can find out about this. Uh, I wanna read you a quote by uh, Dr. Don Redelmeyer. He's actually uh, a noted expert in medical, medical errors at the, in Toronto, at, I think it's Sunny Sunnyvale Hospital. It's like their biggest trauma hospital in Canada. And I'm actually going to have him on the podcast at the end of June. And he, he was quoted in, in a, a book by Michael Lewis, you know, who's one of my favorite authors. He said, whenever there is uncertainty, there has to be judgment. And whenever there's judgment, there is an opportunity for human fallibility. My question to you is, can AI show judgment and can it be a safeguard against, you know, human fallibility and in, in making errors?
1: Uh, well, it can reduce it. Uh, the The model, the model that's used in medical informatics, is not the doctor versus the computer. It's the doctor with the computer versus the doctor without the computer. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the real comparison. And you know, you mentioned these radiol, even for radiology, where they can actually come up with. I think this is what it looks like. People are still using that model of if we make available to our radiologists the, the AI reading of this, uh, the the doctor together with the AI can be better than the doctor without the AI or the AI alone. Yeah,
0: that and makes particularly
1: sense. in clinical medicine where you know the ability to examine patients and get a good history and all that is so important, it, it's just this is the real life model of doctors with these tools. And the questions become how to train people best and uh, how to make real time uh, uh, examination resources. Like there's a professor at Yale who's recorded uh, all sorts of descriptions of how to check for something on a physical exam and Mm. stuff like that. And Yeah. yeah, it's nice to learn all of those, but sometimes what's more practical is to make sure that people have just-in-time learning access.
0: Yeah. I want to just focus a little bit on the potential negative area of AI. And I know with your background in neurology and psychiatry, right, because that was that's always like sort of a, an overlapping field. Um, I, I was a little bit concerned when I read in the New York Times that AI can now offer emotional support. And it sounds like sort of in place of psychotherapists, and they were talking about uh, a new product by this company, uh, what was the name of the company? I don't know. Um, and they were, the, the product is called PI, P-I. And it sounded like almost, I, I thought a little bit pathetically, like your your personal cheerleader telling you how special and wonderful you are when you're down. And, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, what's your thoughts? Again, I, again I don't, this may not cross into your area, the work stuff that you're doing, but do you get concerned when you hear AI now is going to be essentially, you know, the uh, the personal psychotherapist for some patients.
1: Oh, uh, well, there was another similar study recently of, of using, using uh, I some tool, maybe chat GPT to help respond to uh, queries that come into doctor's offices. And they rated them on the degree of emotional support uh, provided. And, the AI ranked better than the doctors in terms of being supportive.
0: <laughs> uh, we're finished then, if that's the case. <laughs> I, I,
1: no, I don't think so. I, I think it's no? just
0: like. Well, I mean, let me ask you a question. If you were having a bad day, you know, and you know something—God uh, forbid—something terrible happened. You were treating a patient, or something in in your personal life, and you know you're distraught. Okay, and. I think all of us kind of know it's it's a little bit almost instinctual that sometimes you want to hear that comforting voice, whether it's your mom, a good friend, your spouse, somebody to just to be a sounding board to you know to just you know that somebody who cares on that side. And then instead, you know, you you go to Pi and you say, "Pi, I, I had a horrible day today. I lost a patient, and you know, God forbid, this person in my family got sick." And the and the pie goes hmm, sounds like you did have a bad day. Uh, tomorrow will be better. You know, so, I don't know. What, what? Well,
1: the, so, so this study on the doctor's offices, I, I think what, you know, generalizing from my experience, you get this really terse answer for your doctor, which is fine for me because I'm a doctor. Well, get rid not, of that
0: doctor. I mean, yeah.
1: I, I know exactly what my doctor is sort of getting okay. at. I don't need the additional information. But okay, other people would want a more general background and stuff like that. And so it sounds like the in these instances, the AI was programmed to provide some of that obvious stuff that if a doctor had sort of given that terse one-liner to a nurse and said, call the patient, the nurse would have added all of that information. So it's not... Uh, it, It's not changing the quality of the information in terms of the right answer, but it's changing the quality of the information in terms of the patience to go into a long explanation. And that seems like a legitimate use of some of these tools. Now, they say the answers needed some heavy editing and stuff like that, but that seems like the sort of thing where, where something like this could be helpful.
0: You know, it just gave me an idea about something where this, you know, I'm making fun of it, but I I think there is one area where it could be helpful. You know, all of us sometimes too, when we go through a bad emotional time, that sometimes, you know, we read, I'll sometimes, I I keep a library of books, I'll go back to a book. You know, a lot of it sometimes might be self-help, it might be spiritual. And sometimes going back and reading a section of an area may help my mood, will help my energy. And that would be interesting if, like again, Pai said, you know, again, something terrible happened that day. Oh, you know, Dean, I know that you like, uh, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness meditations. Why don't you read this 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 chapter, you know, whatever? And uh, and and like at first I might say, oh, that's annoying, you know, like so, you know, that's like somebody telling you to do something. But if I went ahead and read that chapter again, I might, oh, okay, that lifted me up. Who so,
1: gave you a good quote from it? Or, or right, right, back. yeah.
0: Because again, you know, yeah. So I guess it's it's a lot of playing around. It, it just again, it seems so back to the future, Star Trek-y. I mean, it's again, we have to all get our heads around this. You yeah. know, you know how we can make it work. And again, it makes me move on to my last last area. I wanted to ask you: Do you think this could be beneficial or dangerous with AI moving into more? Uh, direct consumer products, whatever it's, whether it's Apple Watches giving you more and more of your own personal health data, um, you know, whether you, what your EKG is like, your oxygenation, you know, et cetera, your, uh, what, somebody else that we just did it with with the, um, what's it called, your, uh, the differential in your heart rate, you know, supposedly that tells you how good your immune system is. Do you think overall this will be a good thing or... Can it be like as we as I sometimes say to patients? Look, I have no problem with people going to Google, but when you make Google Doctor Google and you start reading every symptom and everything, it's overwhelming. You know that's where you do need experience. That's where you do need somebody to tell you, look, that you know the likelihood of this, this, and this is unlikely, and don't don't get yourself crazy.
1: Well, for a decade or so, we've had these monitors that would sort of tell you about. What was going on in your brain while you were sleeping, you know, in terms of uh, basic EEG stuff and sleep phases and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, that's like of some value, but much more important, I think, would be to just say, hey, if you get a lot of exercise, you're much more likely to
0: sleep well. Keep it simple.
1: Uh, I think it was sort of overwhelming people. I I was never tempted to use any things like this because I would think, well, you know, uh, just get more exercise. And
0: uh, well, you get more stressed from finding out all this information, right? Sometimes, sometimes less is more, I think.
1: um, But the but we've actually been thinking a lot about the whole issue of how much can you bring this stuff to the to the uh, consumer Uh, and. Uh, so there's this whole trans. Uh, as you probably heard, some of these tools like ChatGPT, they, they don't do very well. When, when there's a correct answer, they can come up with an answer that sounds good. But like if you give it a numerical problem that doesn't isn't stated as such on the web, it'll just uh, confabulate some sort of uh, answer that is just sounds authoritative, but it's just wrong. Uh, so Stephen Wolfram, who has this uh, Wolfram Alpha software that deals with numerical questions and has a natural language interface, came up with a way. Uh, worked with the people at ChatGPT, where it will then consult the Wolfram software, uh, and it'll come back with a correct answer instead of an incorrect answer with a little tag that says "used Wolfram." And I think this is the this is the future. It's the these generic tools uh, that uh, can deal with a lot of general information uh, if you then take areas with right answers and make it so they have access to that, That's a real step up in terms of uh, uh, the way they can uh, deal with information. And so so we're we are, working on doing the same thing with our diagnostic software. And then you get into the question of, well, you know, does somebody want to find out that they have this disease versus that disease? And so what what we're the model that we're thinking of is it will help using our usefulness algorithm, it will help you come up with the relevant information that should be presented in a history. It's sort of like you've heard of these clipboard, Uh, situations where people will be asked a whole bunch of questions while they're waiting in a doctor's office. This is sort of the ultimate of that, of really using artificial intelligence to help you elicit a lot of the information that might, uh, that if you had a patient nurse or a patient resident, they may be able to do it for you. But you can use artificial intelligence to do that. And you wouldn't sort of weigh in definitively saying, I think, you have X disease, not Y disease, but it would assemble that information. So when you go to the doctor, you are bringing in a lot of verifiable, computable information, yeah. and that may be the good, good way of applying this in the consumer market.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think also this could ever be used also kind of dangerously, a little bit like? probably Google does with some things that let's say a person has a, a certain kind of disease and they want, and they put in, you know, the best doctor for this unusual diagnosis. And so, you know, they, they, they put it in, you know, to chat, chat, GBT or something hoping to get directed to the right place. Cause as we all know too, again, care can really matter depending on where you get that care. But again, I don't know if things will change, but that can be influenced by advertising or, you know, where something ranks because of how much they pay, you know, all that kind of stuff. So are there any safeguards in there uh, that are being worked on or that's, you know. Well,
1: you need good sources of information. And right. that's always a problem. I mean, it's been a huge problem with Wikipedia. Um uh, there's a bunch of people who have high editing privileges in wikipedia okay, and I didn't they know can that. put okay. in all sorts of things that other people then can't change and so there's this been this concern that for articles about drugs for instance that that those would get slant these people would then act as paid consultants to drug companies and slant the information so i will usually be very skeptical about the information on a wikipedia page about about a drug because of the potential of of that being uh uh that being biased now then when you get to an artificial intelligence technique that's building on this information then it's even more indirect and harder to check and so forth and so you really worry about information getting slanted uh based on people trying to slant the information
0: right because you know people always say you know you go up on, on the internet and, you know, you read about something and you're, you're hoping the source is good. Whereas we know, like in journals, there are editors, there are major editors, Look, sometimes two editors looking over an article before they'll ever let anything be published. Whereas on the internet, you know, you could be a self-described expert in something and throw it up on the internet and then search engines can potentially, you know,
1: right. and the, grab they, that they, as
0: important information, when it might not be.
1: And the whole issue of determining sort of what is true, what is authoritative, it, is something that sort of didn't do very well during the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the reasons I wrote a whole bunch of uh, op-eds about the pandemic in the Wall Street Journal, because there were things that the CDC didn't want to talk about, such as that you had really good immunity after getting uh, infected with the coronavirus they didn't want to go say that because then you like go out right. and get infected etc right. and then right. you, you know it's i can understand their concerns but it it got um it had perverse effects in the sense that people would uh uh, people would get be denied the ability to to work yeah. at a certain job because they hadn't been vaccinated. Right. But even though they, they had COVID
0: three times, you they, know, they had COVID,
1: than... <laughs> so They were better, and because having COVID not just protected you but protected you from being able to spread it, while right. they, the, the vaccines against the later variants didn't, yeah. then um, it, it was it, it was a bad message, and it had bad consequences, and so the the whole issue of what are the proper authorities was really degraded during the pandemic uh, mm. because the there were a lot of half truths coming out from the yeah the right building. and you and you
0: have to believe unfortunately that the pharmaceutical companies again played a big role they invested a lot of money in these vaccines and while I still believe that that first round of vaccinations were so critical in, in slowing down the locomotive of COVID. After a while, with people being, and I know even myself, I had the two basic um, Moderna vaccines, then I got infected. And after that, when I was exposed to people in very close quarters, I was fine, you know, fortunately. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, the game, you know, you know, the on-field things change, but yet, you know, there's still, you know, still to this day, they're saying, everybody get your boosters and this and that, and, and that's another so one. if
1: you're if you're the Wall Street Journal, you can get, you know, people like me to sort of level on yeah on a bunch of these things and yeah. it of course depends on their judgment of picking people right. who they think are really
0: that's right are sensible right.
1: and knowledgeable right but when it comes to an ai and you're just getting this information uh and you don't really know where it's coming from it, it's there's real potential in in terms of uh knowing what's true
0: well, let me ask you, one, you just made me think about one more question. So, if somebody they they had these boosters coming out and somebody went to the AI chat or whatever to it said, you know, should you know, uh, I've had covid twice, I've been vaccinated, should I get the booster? Would it give it an answer?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I think there's okay. there was, there was <laughs> you know, there was a huge amount of desire to censor uh, information like that and there's these whole battles of censorship over ai now but you know the chinese won't allow chat gpt because you could ask it what happened in tiananmen square
0: right uh, right right and wow.
1: so there's all these uh all these groups that mm. are using curated information that they trust and it gets back to the trust issue and that's why this used wolfram approach is so important because you can have trust, trustable brands that uh, are consulted on questions that have right answers. Yeah, that's that's I think the real uh, that's the real cause for optimism with all these general interface tools like chat they can explain all sorts of things really nicely where there's a clear answer that's known, but when there's a matter of trust over what's true, they will be able to hook into all sorts of other programs like Wolfram or ours or, uh, or, or, uh, Instacart or, and so forth and get you a real world answer from a brand you can trust. And, mm. and it's, uh, if you think about the way the brain is organized, it's not like, just generic brain all over the place with nothing specialized. There's parts of the brain that are specialized in various ways. And the wonderful thing that the brain does is able to sort of consult all of these and come up with good answers and stuff like that. And that's, I think, the future of AI. And I think all these people who are talking about regulating it don't have nearly the wisdom of Wolfram, Uh, to understand that, yes, there's a problem, but yes, there's something that we can do about it by tying into uh, resources that already are solving this problem in ways that really have domain expertise and curated knowledge and really understand the question.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, this has been amazing. I want to ask you, so if people want to find out more about your company, Consult, are you, again, are you selling your software to hospitals Are you selling to private offices because of course I like to grab some myself or are they sell you know where, where how are, how is your um your work being distributed
1: um uh, well certainly uh, people go to simulconsult.com and um it's available to uh to medical professionals or people who are training to be a medical professional and that would include nurse practitioner um, and so forth and one of the real markets we see is enabling nurse practitioners, physician assistants, genetic counselors to be more useful to the doctors in terms of really being able to push deeper and find really tee up the situation to doctors. And so it's available widely to these groups. We don't have it. But how
0: is it? Is it integrated into Let's say, you know, again, you know, so many of these hospitals and since hospitals own so many practices these days, except for mine, fortunately, they is it, you know, they, they're using the hospital's uh, EMR system. So how is, is this like outside of that? They would just on their own private account, they would have simul consult or it would have to be worked in, you know, purchased by the, the practice or whatever so that they, you know, people have access to this. What's going on? It
1: runs from our website and it's a web app. So it will run on your computer, run on your uh, iPad or whatever, even on a phone. But I don't recommend that unless somebody called you up and you need to look something up pretty quickly. Um, but um, it it doesn't depend on anything. We we have a a, a version that we're uh, we're releasing uh, that the this is what our natural language processing was from to be able to run in the electronic health record environment and to look for things in the electronic health record and save it so others can access it and, and so forth so that's the version that would be sort of a, a, a medical center or maybe a large practice type of version Uh, But an individual can just uh, Mm. subscribe to this and have all these amazing capabilities.
0: Yeah. Uh, We're going to have to wrap up. But Dr. Michael Siegel, thank you so much for coming on and and educating us about AI and medicine. It's a very uh, highly charged area. And I think you've given us a lot more insight. So thank you so much again for taking the time and coming on.